Vanilla Lemon makes decadent vegan stuffed cookies ready to satisfy your deepest cravings without the guilt. Their cookies are handcrafted to perfection and made from carefully selected wholesome ingredients to bring you an exceptional experience. Vanilla Lemon has a great variety of cookies, including gluten-friendly options, and their products are all vegan and delicious. Use code PAW10 to save 10% on your order at vanillalemon.com. This episode is brought to you by The Grinning Goat, Canada's vegan fashion boutique with a storefront in Calgary and an online store that ships across Canada and worldwide. As a Paw & Order podcast listener, you can save 15% on your entire purchase at grinninggoat.ca simply using the code PAW15 at checkout. This is another iRaw podcast. We podcast to make the world a better place for animals. In the Canadian justice system, Animals' interests are rarely represented, but the lawyers at Animal Justice fight to give them a voice in court and the political system. This is the Pawn Order Podcast, and these are their stories. And welcome to episode 83 of the Paw and Order podcast. I'm Camille Labchuk, one of your co-hosts, joined today by both of my other co-hosts, Jessica Scott-Reed and Peter Sankoff. Jess, Peter, hello. Hello. This is so fun having all three of us. Is this the first time? No, we've done this a couple times before, haven't we? Yeah. Yeah. We did the Christmas special. We did the conference That's special last year, but special. never enough. Right. N- nice to see you all again. Nice to see everybody. So yeah, great to be great to be here. It's great to be here, and as you listeners know, we've been um, having a bit of a lighter recording schedule this summer, just to give us all a little bit of a break and a chance to catch a bit of vacation time. So um, you know, this is our first uh, summer episode in August, and we'll be back with a new episode again after Labor Day. We're going to keep it light in August as well. Now, Camille, you say it's been light. I just wanted to let you know and let our listeners know that at Paw and Order HQ here in Edmonton, we never stop working. There have been rehearsals. <laughs> there has been episode planning. It has been nonstop because what I know from our listeners just by reading the tons of reviews that we get is that they, oh, wait a minute, we haven't gotten any reviews. But I mean, I know our listeners expect high quality <laughs> nonstop content. I want you to know that at Paw and Order HQ, we are going nonstop here. Camille might be vacationing. I don't know but I, we are not here. Eh, barely. Peter's I keeping us all together. Yeah. Peter's keeping us all together. Thank you, Peter. Cracking the whip. <laughs> well, I did take a little <laughs> vacation in June, actually, mostly to do renovations, which I suppose is kind of sad, but I am taking a week off in August, so I'm looking forward to that. And uh, Peter, you had some time off. How was that? Well, it was good. Um, I had a a lovely vacation. I did have some time off. I took about 10 days uh, off. Um, 10 days off where we were by a lake as a family. And that was really nice. And then I took my first trip, as Camille knows, because I went out east to visit a lot of people in Montreal, Ottawa, and I finally made it to Toronto. Look at that. We actually spent time 
the Pawn Order, uh, two thirds of the Pawn Order co-hosting team spent time together and we we did all kinds of things. We even worked in the office for a couple of days. We had legitimate work to do and we were working on animal justice matters and um, that was really wonderful. We got to sample all the, the wonderful, uh, well, some of the wonderful vegan cuisine that Toronto has to offer. There's yeah. too much. Peter, you and I went to Fat Choi, which was pretty amazing. If you're in Toronto and you haven't yet been to Fat Choi, please go immediately. They've got a great patio. It's on Ossington Street. Super cool. And um, sort of Asian slash sometimes Indian inspired. Just fantastic food. Fat Choi was was the highlight of the trip. Uh, But I, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't because like I can't, I can't talk about Toronto cuisine without mentioning that Camille and I spent a fair bit of time at our favorite, my favorite restaurant, one of my favorite restaurants in the world, which is the amazing One Love. I just, mm. I forgot how much I missed that place. Like it was so good. Truly, truly so good. Although, you know, there, there was a bit of a disagreement over which is the best dish, it is, the roti or it, the barbecue tofu. I'm always going to vote for the barbecue tofu but I, I i was about to get to that camille i was gonna say that despite your misguided views we both agree that it's great and probably one of the best uh, vegan restaurants I, that i know of like i'd go worldwide quite frankly but even despite your misguided views about the best meal because it is not the barbecue tofu i just i just don't get it camille Stop saying these blasphemous things on our podcast, Peter. You're ruining it for all of our listeners. <laughs> you guys are making me very hungry nonetheless. Jessica, you're going to have to go to Toronto and be the tiebreaker here. You're going to have to go. Deal. Although, although in fairness. Task. Yeah, but Camille, if she goes, it's going to take her six weeks to eat through the barbecue tofu and roti because like the portion sizes there are enormous. I know. It was two meals. Oh. It was two meals. It was. It was two meals for each of us. So good. I'm getting, my mouth is watering just talking about yeah. this. So we're going to have to. We better move on to another topic. Yeah. (laughs) Well, let's check in with Jess. You have had a pretty cool summer too so far. Yeah, I mean, I definitely wasn't traveling around and eating all kinds of vegan roti like you guys. I was working. I was at school. I went back to school. I uh, did a... Uh, media fellowship at Vermont Law School, which was absolutely incredible. So Vermont Law School has for the last, I believe about 10 or so years, been doing this fellowship uh, for environmental journalists. And this was the first year where they changed it to uh, to animal journalists. So obviously I applied uh, and I, along with another journalist from the counter, we um, got selected to be the animal media fellows, which basically has you um, working like a journalist and thinking like a lawyer. So I got to take an intensive course in American farmed animal welfare law, which was amazing. It really filled in a lot of knowledge gaps I had about uh, how things work in the U.S. because, you know, I work so much here in Canada, but I'd love to branch out more to the U.S. And I already have started doing so as a result of taking this course, uh, working on some American projects right now, uh, because now I I have a better handle. Some of the case law stuff was really difficult to to wrap my head around, but uh, I took from what I needed and I I learned a whole lot and I am so grateful for the experience. The faculty, I have a whole new group of of sources of experts I can use in the future. So what a great experience. Even though I didn't get to actually go to Vermont, which was so sad. Yeah, but it was so sad. I wanted to go so bad, but like the the lining up of the vaccinations plus two weeks was literally the day that the course started. So it just wasn't going to happen this year, but they did a really great job of keeping me feeling very immersed 
uh, in the in the community and uh, meeting with lots of faculty members. Uh, I really felt for those two weeks that I was sort of there. So shout out to Vermont Law School for doing such a great job with that. Wow, that's so amazing. What an incredible opportunity. And I love that you also had an opportunity to present on Canadian Farms Animal Protection Law while you were there. Yeah, that was that was a big part of it. Um, I, I had to create what they call a hot topic um, presentation. Everybody, the fellows get to do it. Lots of visiting faculty get to do it. Uh, it was a, a 45 mis- minute presentation and mine was on uh, the problematic state of farm animal protection in Canada, which is a very heavy topic. And I tried to do my best to fit in the main issues in 45 minutes. It was sort of a crash course on everything that's really messed up here in terms of um, uh, farmed animal welfare. So it was sort of like a, a coming together of all the work I've done in the past. And it's available still online. There's a recording uh, at vermontlawschool.com or .edu slash live or something like that. We'll link um, to you can you, Okay, cool. We'll link to it, uh, and it's there. So if you are, you know, an activist or uh, and just an animal lover concerned, wanting to learn more about what things, how things are working here in Canada, I, th- I think this offers a good sort of crash course. Oh, I love it! So exciting! Wow. Well, congratulations on that. Thank you. Thank you. It feels feels good to be completed. And I, I, I kind of want to go back again because now there's another course that Delcy and Winters is a, a friend of ours that we know through um, the Canadian Animal Law Conference. She does another course on uh, animal, more generally on animal welfare law in the U.S. that incorporates more about uh, captive animals and wildlife and companion animals. And I'm going to reapply and try and go back and do that course next year. Oh, totally. Delcy's one of the smartest animal lawyers I know and is just joining the faculty She's awesome. at University. University of Vermont Law School, which is amazing yes. for anyone who's considering going yes, there. Yes, I got to meet her over Zoom, and she was uh, such an inspiration. I mean, we've been following each other on Twitter, thanks to the Canadian Animal Law Conference anyways, but it was a great, uh, you know, more more personal connection. Oh, so great. Wow. So, yeah, I mean, in other news, speaking of animal law cases, we've, we've got a couple on the go right now um, via animal justice, one which we've spoken about a fair amount on this podcast before, but that's the Chen case out of Alberta, which is what Peter and I were working on together in the office when he was in town. We actually had to file our factum. So we're intervening in that case to um, make submissions about animal cruelty sentencing. It's a sentencing case involving a, a young man who's accused of abusing a dog. And, um, you know, we, we kind of had a unique take on it. It's one of the first opportunities that um, a court of appeal has had to opine on the appropriate weight to give sentencing principles in animal cruelty cases. And we filed our submissions in that um, a few weeks ago. So looking forward to the hearing which, Peter, is September 21st? Yeah, September 21st. We don't know yet uh, if uh, we will be permitted to appear to make submissions. That's always subject to the panel's uh, discretion, but I'm optimistic we will be allowed. And uh, yeah, it was a lot of work over the summer. We should give a shout out to uh, Chris Rudnicki, who was co-counsel in the appeal, and also to a lot of, there was a cast of thousands working on this, uh, Camille, though in the end, it was you and I working away in the office to get the final things done. Yeah. We kind of hammered out the final draft, which I think we're very happy with. Whenever you work with a big cast on a legal brief, there just comes a point when two people have to stop with all the draft submissions and sort of pull it together. So Camille and I were tasked with that. And that was my last two days of vacation. I don't know how that happened, but it was great. I'm really uh, pleased with the work. I think we did something interesting for the court. And uh, yeah, Animal Justice is able to speak to these matters and and provide some guidance about how to go forward. And I'm hoping that we're going to hear more about that in our 
in our September episode where we, you know, hopefully delve into it in a bit more detail, hopefully with a guest to be named. But anyway, we'll see how that goes. Stay tuned, folks. And we have another court case on the go, too. Uh, The other thing that we spend a lot of time doing in July, and primarily your colleague, Caitlin Mitchell, um, was filing for leave to intervene in um, a Supreme Court case about public interest standing. So it's the Council of Canadians with Disabilities and the uh, Attorney General of BC. It's a case where um, the Council of Canadians with Disabilities, plus a couple of individual applicants who experience disabilities, applied um, to the court to challenge the constitutionality of um, some you know, provisions dealing with healthcare in BC. And for various reasons, it seems like the individual applicants had to drop out of the case. So the court wasn't in a position to hear direct evidence from them, but they did have Canadian Council or Council of Canadians with Disabilities, CCD, uh, to stick around as the public interest applicant. And the court initially, the chamber's judge said, no, that's not good enough. You need somebody or at least one person who's directly affected by the situation, which kind of runs really contrary to public interest standing law. And BC Court of Appeal reversed that on appeal. So, you know, made the situation a little bit better, but leave to intervene to the Supreme Court was granted. So we are hoping to participate to talk about what public interest standing means to um, marginalized entities, specifically in our case, animals, where, you know, a, a nonprofit like Animal Justice or an individual applicant might want to bring case a case forward on behalf of animals. And you're necessarily not going to have somebody, i.e. an animal, who's directly affected as an applicant in the case. So lots of subtleties to get into there, and we're hoping to have the opportunity to, you know, try to make sure that the law of public interest standing develops in the right direction for animals. Um, It's super important for getting these cases heard by courts, and uh, we're excited about it. So we should know probably by the next podcast if we've been granted leave to intervene. Always great news. Always great to see animal justice doing that kind of work. I think, again, it's important for uh, the courts to regularly hear about the way in which certain doctrines impact upon animals. So I think that's great news. Great work, Camille. Great work to you and Caitlin. Yeah, yeah. And absolutely, Scott Tinney on our team, too. Scott as well. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Awesome group of people. Um, Yeah. So we'll keep you posted on that. And I feel like that's kind of it for, you know, updates on what's been going on. Um, we have one exciting sort of general show update, which is that we oh, have it's exciting. a new advertiser. Pinello oh, I can't wait. I'm, I can't wait. I've been waiting for you to talk about this. Oh, I know. I'm going to read the ad and then we're going to discuss. So Pinello Lemon's vegan stuffed cookies are sweetened with unrefined sugars such as coconut and panella sugar and made from whole grain flours and coconut oil. Each cookie has its own personality and is handcrafted in a particular way to create unique flavors. If you're looking for a gift, Pinello Lemon cookies are the perfect present. They're beautifully packaged to give you a unique experience. They ship Canada-wide and have great shipping rates. Life is much better when you're looking forward to an online cookie order. I think that's true. Order from PanellaLemon.com, P-A-N-E-L-A, Lemon.com, and have delicious vegan stuffed cookies delivered to your doorstep. Make sure to use the code PAW10 to save 10% on your order. So I think the three of us have been excited for a long time to discuss how awesome these cookies are. I mean, I'm not even really like a huge cookie fan. I'm not really a sweet tooth, more of a savory type person, but oh my God, like this was like a lovely little surprise that just arrived at my doorstep. Oh, look, we get to try these cookies. The world changed after that day. The world (laughs) changed after that day. Now I love cookies and now I can't stop thinking about these cookies and I'm gonna go order some and use our own discount code. (laughs) 
They are so moist and stuffed with deliciousness and all the flavors were awesome. Some of them are gluten-free, some of them are not, depending on what you're looking for. Um, I, I had these cookies on the go in like June when I was sort of off and like doing renovations and stuff. And I was so busy, I didn't really have time to eat as much as I wanted to, but one of the cookies was like an entire meal in itself, or at least stayed yeah. off the hunger pangs yeah. for hours. It was fantastic. They're kind of like little cakes. Yeah. They're soft, pillowy. They are. They're very much like little cakes. And and they were a big hit, uh, needless to say, in my house. Um, I'm just disappointed now that I'm looking over their cookies that I, we didn't get a chubby puppy because that's what I'm going to order next time. Chubby Vanilla puppy. Vanilla and chocolate swirl cookie with organic yes. chocolate chips stuffed with organic cream. Like that would be my dream. Not that I, I didn't like the ones we got. We definitely enjoyed the Sinner, which has a big piece of organic white chocolate cake. Uh, yes. Love that. Um, that's the one I remember the most, though I'm pretty sure we also had a butterfly and a couple of others. Uh, but man, I'll tell you, I'm excited to try that chubby puppy. I agree. These are incredible cookies. They're big. You can't, there's no way to eat a cookie, like unless you're like, you know, really hungry. Cause you're right, Camille, it's yeah, a meal. They're big. Good for sharing. Good for sharing. Also, you could pop them in the freezer. They come individually wrapped. So I think they'd last quite a while. Like just super convenient, super tasty. I'm ordering yeah, some after I, this. I, <laughs> I agree. I'm also uh, super excited. Did you know that uh, in Vancouver, you can actually buy them? I think it's just Vancouver. I'm looking right now. Oh. So it's online for everybody else. But in those lucky Vancouver listeners can actually purchase them all over the place. Wow. They've got to They're change that. Come company, on. Yeah. yeah, come on, Penella Lemon. Just across the border in Alberta. We need you too. <laughs> Thank you for joining us, Panella Lemon. We are very happy to have you. <laughs> I love uh, I also, love all our sponsors, but I particularly love our cookie sponsor. <laughs> yes, that's my favorite sponsor so far. No, no picky favorites, so picky favorites. But we also love reviews. We need some great five-star reviews. Join our more than 150 five-star reviews. Uh, we also have Patreon, don't forget. You can support the Pawn Order for as little as a dollar per month. Thanks to Rabino, our newest Patreon supporter. We have different Patreon uh, prize tiers. At the $5 level, you get a mailed card to say thanks, as always. But now you also get a Pawn Order sticker, too. At the $20 level, you get your choice between an official Pawn Order mug or a t-shirt. But we also have t-shirts for everyone now at the shop.animaljustice.ca site. And anyone that supports us at the $10 a month level or more gets a 15% discount at our online store. Yeah, thanks to everyone who makes this podcast happen. All right, so on to the news. Because we've taken so much time off, there's tons. So we're going to, you know, skim the surface and touch on as much as we can. But let's start with some good news. Let's start with a victory. We got news uh, just in the last couple days that McDonald's has removed some misleading greenwashing ads after an animal justice complaint. So backstory to this, in November, uh, McDonald's launched this certified sustainable beef um, burger. They're like, oh, it's a green burger. It's so sustainable. It's awesome. 
Fine print said up to 30% of the beef in this burger may be from <laughs> certified sustainable sources, whatever that means. Like, obviously, the idea of sustainable beef is a huge oxymoron, so I don't think you can say that however you produce the beef, but there we are. So we saw this right 30%, away. 30%, though, Camille, 30%. That's that's something to get may. excited about. Yeah, May. 30% May. That's huge. <laughs> Every third bite might be, like, sort of sustainable. Yeah. So we called McBullshit. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yes. Yeah, we called McBullshit. It was it was absurd. Uh, they had billboards Make all over bullshit. Toronto. I think all over the country. Did you did you see them in Edmonton and Winnipeg? You too. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah I saw them. I saw them all. every day. I might drive my daughter to daycare, and it made me angry every morning. It was a huge advertising campaign. <laughs> So what ended up happening yes, is we filed a complaint with the Competition Bureau and the Canadian Food Inspection Agency. They both have jurisdiction to investigate misleading claims about food. And they both took enforcement action. They investigated these complaints. They met with McDonald's. It seems like they both engaged in sort of voluntary compliance mechanisms. So um, the end result is that McDonald's has discontinued that billboard campaign after meeting with the regulators who expressed the concerns that we expressed in our complaints. So huge victory for um, animals, huge victory against greenwashing. Well, I think their next, uh, they're going to solve this problem, Camille, by their next um, ad campaign will just have a big picture of the cow with a brush because then they can talk about the brush, the brush. and the brush. The, brush, the brush, which, as I like to say, solves all animal welfare problems. As long <laughs> as the cows have the brush, it's all good. It's all they care about in life. They don't really care if their babies are taken away or if they just have to no, live no, in a no. barn. As long as they have the brush. Or if they're stabbed in the neck, who cares? They got the brush. But you know what I'll tell you? On that brush. billboard that I had to drive past, it went from the sustainable uh, burger claims to now it's the giant Big Mac. The What is it called? The Big oh, Mac? Oh, yes. The Br- giant Big Mac. The Grand Man. Big Mac or something. And I was like, I think I tweeted after I saw it saying something like, read the increasingly wor- warming room. Like, how is this something that is a marketable thing right now? Like, literally, I can't see the billboard through the smoke of the wildfires. And yet, let's just make them bigger. And <laughs> yeah. by the way, we've been we've been we've been too light on McDonald's on this show, to be perfectly honest. And I say that because like I I don't think any of the fast food companies are particularly good for a lot of different things. <laughs> like but but at least we've talked about it on the show, we can say that most of the other major companies have moved to having some vegan products available. So at least they're trying to integrate it as part of their brand philosophy. We've talked on the show, Camille, I know about the Impossible Whopper, which I quite like and I I don't eat it often, but when I'm when I'm traveling, I will grab an Impossible Whopper. And yet McDonald's is is the laggard, right? They've been the last to come to the party. In Europe, they have the McVegan, which you might remember, Camille, I think it was two summers ago, I reported on the McVegan and how much my daughter and I liked it. And they just have not seen fit to introduce that in uh, into Canada. So I give McDonald's, I mean, we, we already have a zero this month and it's a good one, but uh, uh, I would I would happily throw McDonald's under the bus for I don't know what is taking them so long to join this party because for all the reasons Jessica points out the environment uh obviously the animal welfare concerns there just seems to be a a level of disinterest mcdonald's has in joining the party and they are still the number one fast food company in the world and i think it's disappointing that they haven't made that jump yeah and in fact they're doubling down they're doubling down right like they're not only not doing that but they're actually making things worse (laughs) 
Yeah, and you contrast them with with a company like say A and W, which you know still sells meat, not good for the climate. But A and W first introduced the Beyond Burger in Canada, and don't know if you saw this, but my Veg Economist newsletter this morning, great newsletter because it sort of reminds you of all the awesome investment and victories in the plant based and cellular meat world.、Um, but they announced in that newsletter that、um, A and W is actually bringing the Beyond Meat chicken nuggets to Canada starting <gasps> Monday, August ninth. I.e., by the time this podcast out, you can eat them. I didn't know that. That's a big deal. <laughs> yeah. So listeners, don't wait. It's a limited time run. We don't know how long they're gonna last. Anyway. Oh God, we gotta we gotta eat a lot of those. <laughs> Review forthcoming, Jess. <laughs> yes, yes. I should really eat more before this podcast. I know, right? I know. We are talking about so many things that are making me hungry. <laughs> Oh, okay, well, so as much good news as there is, sometimes there's also sad news.、Um, yeah. Animal Justice filed a complaint recently with provincial authorities in Ontario about Kiska, the last surviving orca at Marineland, who experts say is likely the, lo- the world's only orca. I did not fully appreciate this until recently, but she is the only truly solitary orca in the world. She lives all by herself. A couple of other orcas don't have other orca tank mates, but they do have access to cetacean.、Um, Companionship and Kiska does not. So we filed a cruelty complaint、um, about Kiska after a video emerged posted by Phil Demers at Walrus Whisper on Twitter and Instagram, who of course is the Marineland whistleblower who's exposed、um, much of what he says are very disturbing conditions there and whale mass graves and all kinds of really troubling stuff. And the videos of Kiska, oh, they are so sad. She's swimming listlessly in a tank by herself. She's just kind of floating there for the most part.、Um, but there's one aerial shot where you just see how small the tank really is in comparison to her body, and how she's just kind of hanging there in the water. And it's、um, it's an offense in Ontario to cause both physical and psychological distress to an animal. Aquariums aren't exempt,、um, so there's no reason I, I don't think why authorities shouldn't investigate the conditions that she's been kept in. You did a great job of that, Camille, on the CTV Morning Show, and I think you really hit hit home the fact that so many of us I I didn't know this idea, like you said, that she is essentially the most lonely and and isolated orca in the world. I had no idea that that was the case, and that really should enrage people. And I think you probably got that message across to a lot of people on that show. Oh, thanks. I, I hope so. I mean, it, it just seems to me like the outcry. For doing something about Kiska has re- reached like a very, very intense period.、Um, a lot of people are calling for her to be moved. That's definitely one option. She could be moved to somewhere with other orcas. It's hard to say if that's feasible or not.、Uh, but another option eventually might be the whale sanctuary project in Nova Scotia. They're building a sanctuary. I know they're focusing on belugas at the outset, but. Either that sanctuary or a place like that has to be part of the solution for these captive orcas and belugas and dolphins. Yeah, it's uh, it's really obviously upsetting. Marineland has been a frequent topic on this show.、Um, I have to wonder how the pandemic has affected Marineland and their ability to do the things they're supposed to be doing.、Um, in, in in, I mean, again, the the pandemic affected every part of human society.、You、can't imagine that、uh, these type of animal captive parks are any different.、Uh, you have to wonder how financially all these places have held up through the pandemic. I'm guessing it's government support, but but no matter what, even With government support, you have to remember that these are places that hold captive living beings in them, and there are, are particular vulnerabilities at stake. So、um, every time I see stuff like this, it just reminds me 
yeah, we've gone through all these things, but so have the animals in a lot of these places. And the inability to the inability to access their normal revenue streams has to have an impact, it seems to me, on the ground. And, and I realize that's not exactly what's part of this Kiska complaint per se, but uh, it just reminded me of that, uh, that, that all these various safari parks, zoos, et cetera, um, are going to be facing particular challenges. And that's true of all businesses, but these businesses have beings that are, are subject to to what happens at them. And, and that is a real concern for me going forward. Yeah, it's, it really makes the case for government investment, not in just keeping these places open, but in transitioning them to sanctuaries and moving animals when appropriate. Um, it <laughs> blows my mind to think that the feds have given money to aquariums and to zoos to stay open when most Canadians think it's wrong to keep animals in zoos and aquariums. They just don't have public support anymore. Yeah. All right, well, um, speaking, speaking of lacking of, public support. <laughs> indeed, I was going to say the exact same thing. Chuck Wagon <laughs> Racing, back in the news. So a, a bunch of you probably know that the Stampede, Calgary Stampede, did go ahead this year, including many rodeo events, but not Chuck Wagons. Chuck Wagons are, of course, the most deadly Stampede rodeo event. Um, horses are pretty much guaranteed to die every year, usually multiple, multiple horses. Uh, Vancouver mm-hmm. Humane Society has compiled statistics to show that over 60 Horses have died in chuck wagon races at the Stampede since the 80s. It's really bad. Calgary Stampede. No chuck wagon, no horses dying in chuck wagon events at the Calgary Stampede this year, thankfully. Yeah. That's just not possible because they're not running them, which is great. They decided that they had to cancel them this year. But the event still took place in other in other places. Yeah. So Red Deer held a chuck wagon event. And, And let's be clear on why the Stampede actually canceled the chuck wagons. It's interesting. They expressed a concern about the welfare of the horses because of the training season and various factors um, that led up to the event. They didn't feel that the horses were in a proper position or maybe the competitors were in a proper position to assure the safety. So I don't give the Stampede any marks or points for animal welfare as a general matter, but they made this decision. A lot of other smaller rodeos did not, including the Red Deer um, Westerner, Wagons at Westerner. North American Pony Chuck Wagon Championship. Yeah, Chuck Wagon Championships. Um, So predictably, a horse was put down after a crash in the final race of what they're calling the North American Pony Chuck Wagon Championships in Red Deer, Alberta. So really um, sad. They released a statement calling it an unfortunate event. Like it's, it's not an unfortunate mm-hmm. event. It's a predictable event based on your actions. Well, Camille, I think as always, you're being unfair. I think we should read the entirety of the statement because, uh, you know, the Alberta Professional Chuck Wagon and Chariot Association and Westerner Park, Camille, are committed, committed, Camille, to the safety of the drivers and their animals, ensuring, I love this, the utmost animal welfare standards are adhered to, said the statement from Wagons of West every possible precaution open brackets this is not in the release open brackets short of not running races that are going to kill horses close brackets right. is taken to ensure the animal's safety and well-being i don't know about you but i just love reading releases like that they make me feel oh so comfortable because um they're absolutely meaningless like they have no meaning like to be clear to be clear, the Alberta Professional Chuck Wagon and Chariot Association and Westerner Park do not want any horses to die in their races. Like, to be clear, of course, they, they don't. don't want that. 
No, they don't for multiple reasons, right? They don't because I don't think they're unfeeling towards their horses. Like, I, I just don't think that's true. It's not malice that, like, they want them to die, nor is it good publicity for them when they die. Like, it's bad. But, like, that's just saying that they don't want it. It's like, honestly, to me, the comparison is I ran a drag race with some friends last night through downtown Edmonton. During the drag race, I adhered to the greatest prospect care, right, to make sure that my car was properly serviced. I didn't want anyone to die during that drag race. Of course, I did not. But the activity itself is inherently dangerous. There are risks to the activity. So the idea that every possible precaution is taken to ensure the animal's safety and well-being is just, it's nonsensical. A, even if, I'm not even sure that's true, every possible precaution. But let's, let's for the sake of argument, assume that it is. It's still a flawed idea. And I think we have to call it out as such. That's our job here at Pawn. You know what? And I also think about the the people who go to watch this. We know that because of the immense occurrence of of horses dying in this event, like like you said, almost every single time it happens, a horse <laughs> dies. It makes me think of people who go to watch car racing knowing that they're kind of waiting for a car crash and that that's that sort of that sick draw to see and wait for something horrible to happen that's chuck wagon audiences now you're not waiting to see who wins you're waiting to see who crashes and that's messed up oh that's an awful thought truly wow yeah and you know let's keep in mind that is the way we started off this segment was speaking of losing popular support rodeo is not supported broadly by the population maybe in alberta a little bit more so but most people opposed to rodeo events another one of those four of using animals and entertainment that we just need to do away with. Yes. Especially, especially, like, especially, and I'm not here to defend one type of rodeo against another because I think lots of, uh, there, we could go through a lot of events in rodeo. Like, the whole idea of rodeo is that it's an invented sport and it's like the, to me, as we've talked about before, you have to knock off, if you can't knock off the worst, you have no chance of knocking off the rest. Like, that is just the way progression takes place and it's like, there was, I don't know if you've ever seen there was a form of calf roping calf roping is a hideous sport but there was a particular so do i but there was a particular form of calf roping and i can't remember what it was that was particularly dangerous and eventually rodeo came to the conclusion that like we're just going to keep getting grief for this particular thing and they pulled that off the equation and i'm of the view that like well chuck wagon racing has been there for a long time of all the many terrible events that take place in the rodeo this is the most terrible and most dangerous the horses and I think it's just time to recognize that that needs to go because again to me as rodeo people correctly point out the goal ultimately is to recognize the principal Camille said that entertainment for human purposes is unacceptable but I also believe that that is something that takes place over time that is the way in which we evolve as a human species and it's time to recognize uh, that, that these chuck wagon races are particularly dangerous for the horses involved and if we can get rid of them then uh, we're on the track to potentially moving towards more advances in future. Yeah, absolutely. All right, moving on to another Out West story. We um, got some news the other week that the British Columbia Public Health Officer, Bonnie Henry, has ordered that no new mink farm licenses be granted after more minks have tested positive for COVID-19 outbreak. Uh, so this is good news, obviously. Um, it's obviously not the best news either. It does not go far enough. There are, I believe, 
believe still nine existing mink farms. I don't know if that's all fur farms or just mink farms in BC, but there's still quite a few that are currently in operation. And so if the idea is that new farms are too dangerous to operate and we shouldn't allow those licenses, how can we justify keeping existing farms open? Because they pose the clear and present current risk. Yeah, I think we, I think it's important to shout out the the activists who have been working really hard to put pressure on this industry in BC in particular. Um, but this this definitely was felt like a bit of a, a band aid solution, something you can put in the news to say that you're being proactive in some sort of way. But that really isn't mitigating the problem whatsoever. We have mink still put testing positive on these farms. Um, and I remember when I wrote about it for the Globe and Mail when the, the mink issue was sort of new after it had uh, emerged in Denmark and in the U.S. And I asked a bunch of um, provincial agriculture ministers if they were testing mink. And at that time, they weren't even testing them. They were still focusing on bio biosecurity measures and keeping the people safe. And I think it was within a week that they were starting to test positive, that finally they had to t- start testing. Uh, and it's and that was, I think, in November. And here we are still with, with mink contracting COVID-19 and it's and then then and then they're escaping right these mink are, are often escaping from these farms or interacting with wildlife because these cages are outdoors uh, other animals are interacting with them through these cages um, I really think that the alarm being sounded on this issue is not loud enough and that this particular move though good um, I think is is for you know placating the public with with a false sense of security yeah, no, it's a classic. This is sort of one of my overall criticisms about what lawmakers do with respect to animal law is that anytime we do something, we basically make it so that something in the future will affect people, but anyone who's already doing an activity is like totally exempt. So that goes with like the orca, yes. keeping ban in Ontario, yes. you know, keeping whales and dolphins in captivity in Canada. Sometimes there's good reasons for this. I, I totally agree with that kind of proposition. But in the case of BC fur farms, there's not. Um, you know, it's the, it's the current licenses that need to end as well. And, you know, somehow just letting these businesses continue, as you point out, just just puts everyone at immense risk. And yeah, I second your shout out to the activists. There's been such a great local campaign by local individuals as well as national groups. We played a very small role in that. It's mostly due to the hard work of others. Mm -hmm. Amy Serrano, the fur bearers, they've been doing really great work. Yeah. All right. And our last news story, back to the zoo industry. No more elephant rides at African Lion Safari. So a very in-depth piece by um, CBC out of Hamilton, Ontario, about African Lion Safari, which is a zoo and theme park near rural Hamilton. And it discusses an incident that I'm sure we talked about two years ago in the podcast when an elephant um, attacked her um, trainer, basically, after a rider was dismounting from her back. Um, There was an Ontario Ministry of Labour report obtained by the CBC that shed light on exactly what happened um, during this ride, which, you know, is something that many zoo associations say is too dangerous to um, be acceptable by their members and they actually disallow. Hmm. Yeah, well, um, is this a good news story, Camille? Well, it's not a good news story with respect to the trainer who was who was seriously injured. Um, No, of course I guess was left with a uh, bleeding head. He got pushed to the ground, um, kind of into a corner, like pretty troubling situation. Well, I didn't mean that. No, no, of course not. Of course not. I meant the official word, right? That's come down. Yeah. So yeah, because the they're they're not really saying that it was still open. Rides are gonna. Yeah, the elephant rides are still are still allowed in Canada. That's kind of the issue here, right? Is that they're banned in the U.S. and that even as a result of this issue here in Canada, not that I think that there are, is there other animal uh, elephant rides happening in Canada that we know of? Not to my knowledge. No, I, I think this was the only one. But this leaves it open that if anybody wants to do it again, it's still permitted. Like there's suggestions to not do it, but there's no actual ban on it. 
Yeah, so that's right. Um, there's no legal restrictions on elephant rides anywhere in the country. Um, maybe there would be one day if uh, this federal bill passes that's been proposed by Senator Marie Sinclair to restrict right. elephant and great ape captivity, but that's um, not our reality today. But yeah, the um, CASA, Canada's Accredited Zoos and Aquariums, which is like a zoo industry lobby group slash, well, it calls itself an oversight body. I don't really think that's right. an accurate characterization of what it does. <laughs> But CASA standards, which are kind of like the codes of practice, they're not binding, but you do need to apparently follow them to be a member of CASA, which is meaningless in most respects. Um, CASA doesn't disallow those those rides. There's the, another concern I've had with this story is where is Maggie? Where is the elephant? They don't they, they don't know where she is. That is troubling. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, like there's no indication that she's even still at this place. And the news story just kind of glosses. I mean, the news, the story was very well done, very thorough. And I appreciated the in-depth work. But that part was like, wait a minute. <laughs> or just like one line about there's no indication that Maggie's still at this park. And yet there's no follow-up as to where she even is. Yeah, I mean, they actually describe her as being quite old. She's apparently in her early 50s, which is getting old for an elephant. And the fact that they're still using her... Potentially, you know, as recently as two years ago, they were for sure. And maybe they still are now. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Um, God, just let her retire. God damn it. That's we got to find out where she is. Yeah. yeah I, I seem to, I, I, I think I hadn't read this aspect of the story. I thought I had read another story that suggested that African Lion Safari has now, I know they voluntarily suspended. I thought they were, maybe I misread it because I thought they were, they were permanently, oh no, sorry, that is, they said in a statement, see, I wasn't crazy. I remember reading this. They've permanently stopped elephant rides. Uh, the word mm -hmm. permanent was not in their original announcement. That is new, it seems to me, from the story. That was what I was referring to at the beginning as the good news part of the story in the sense of at least they've acknowledged that would be theoretically it seems to me Camille the last the last there, there will no longer be elephant rides in Canada because I don't believe any of the other uh, zoos that have animals uh, allow those sort of things or have allowed them for many years yeah that that seems right it would be it would be super helpful if there was actually a law restricting this practice yes. or restricting elephant captivity in the first place because of course somebody could come along and start new rides yeah but um you know progress nonetheless to see this moving i'm definitely gonna try and find out where maggie is because this that bothers me a lot good keep us posted this is i i'm so i'm so i find this so confusing maybe you two can help me out because i'm going through the story and i read it before but i'm just looking at it again so it's like Kaz's American counterpart hasn't allowed any of its 241 accredited facilities to offer elephant rides since 2011. And then says six of those sites. Oh, I get it. Those are the ASA sites. Uh, yeah, that, they're not Kaza sites. Yeah. Uh, the Americans because, have long had better like voluntary zoo, zoo standards. Right, right. Okay, now I'm getting it because they listed all these facilities that don't have elephants. Like they say six of those sites are in Canada, but unless I'm mistaken, Calgary Zoo, Toronto Zoo, and Vancouver Aquarium, none of them have elephants. So it's like, okay, like they can't offer elephant rides either way because they don't have elephants anymore. Is that not correct? I, I didn't think Vancouver Aquarium had them. I know Calgary and Toronto don't. <laughs> <laughs> is that that oh, is correct, Ed, right? Yeah. Edmund, Edmonton is the one with uh, the famous. Yeah, Edmonton, elephant. but there are no there are no rides with uh, Lucy. That's no, you know what? I actually rode an elephant as a child. I have a picture of myself on an elephant at the Assiniboine Park Zoo, and we we don't have uh, we don't have elephant rides at the Assiniboine Park Zoo, but I do believe we still have uh, elephants. Mm. Camille, is it too late to revoke uh, uh, you know Jessica's host status? Like she rode an elephant as a child. I think punishment. I rode an elephant. Like, hey, I rode an uh, elephant very, as a at child. At the very least, 
At the very least, a suspension is in order, wouldn't you say? I need punishment. And I'm not going to tell you that I also held a baby lion at some point and (laughs) I kissed a dolphin. I kissed a dolphin when I was 18. I know all these horrible things. I've never done any of that stuff, but I don't think that's because I didn't want to. I just, I didn't travel in that way. I'd never, I mean, I've been to the zoo, that I can say, multiple times as a kid, but I never did. I never did. I'm just a better person than you, Jessica. Let's be honest about it. (laughs) You're a better child than me, for sure. A more dedicated podcast. I also ate meat. I also ate meat. Yeah, as did we. But I will say, I'm sure I'm sure this is the same for you. Not only have my kids never touched those animals, my kids have never been to the zoo or any type of park. No, like mine either. They just don't mine either. Only only wildlife sanctuaries. That's it. Sanctuaries all the we're way. Doing, we're, we're doing the right thing now that, we're, now that we have the wherewithal as parents. <laughs> know better, do better. Yeah. That's trying. right. Yep. Okay, well, we've got a main topic today that's super interesting. (laughs) It's a pet custody case. So there's a case that recently came out of the um, Superior Court of Justice in Toronto, in Ontario, in Toronto specifically, um, about a couple that sort of maybe jointly had a dog and then the fate of that dog. And there's quite a lot of interesting things about this case, which we're going to get into, but it's Duboff and Simpson. 2021 ONSC 4970. We will link to it in case anyone actually wants to read it. Um, But Peter, you and I got got notice of this as someone emailed us about the case and uh, found it super interesting right away. Yeah, it is a really interesting case. And uh, um, not only is it an interesting case, um, we have not talked about this since it's way back. I don't have the number in front of me. I think it's like episode four or five. Like it is a long time ago that we talked about the case that sort of prompted this case and 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 this case is interesting for numerous reasons and we can dig into it in detail but i will say this what this case tells me more than anything else and this case cites a lot of other cases in it is that pet custody is back on the menu and what i mean by that is we talked about this like baker versus harmina is the case that prompted this case and if you go back in the show archives i'm pretty sure it's back in early 2019 that we talked about baker versus harmina it's a long time ago. It was really early days of Paw and Order. And we devoted a whole show to talking about it because that was a case um, where there was a 2-1 split in the Newfoundland Labrador Court of Appeal. It was, without question, the most detailed um, um, decision on pet custody that had ever been released in Canada. And the majority of the court was, again, parroting the traditional line of being fairly dismissive of these claims. And while the case that we're about to discuss is not necessarily, you know, groundbreaking or superb in the way in which it resolves these issues, you can nonetheless see that a lot of the Baker versus Harmina dissent is slowly filtering its way into the law, certainly at the very least in the in the ways in which the court is willing to look at animal cases. Now, that said, there's a lot of disparaging language in here as well, but there is another case referred to um, in the decision. Uh, it's a case of Coates versus Dixon, which is referred to another very recent case from the Ontario Superior Court. And what I think all these cases are indicating is at least an open-mindedness of the court to look at these claims uh, as opposed to what we used to see, which was the courts are not here for stupid claims like pet custody, so therefore don't bother us. Yeah. Courts have often said troubling things like, you know, dog is no different than a set of silverware. 
and you should split it accordingly. <laughs> well, so, more than that, not only that, like that, that's the part we're gonna get into in a moment, the question of ownership, where I think the courts have showed a renewed willingness to look at that more broadly. And the only reason they've done that, that you can't even get to that place unless you're willing to recognize that an animal is not an ordinary piece of property because there's no point in doing it otherwise. Like this test that we're gonna look at doesn't exist for other pieces of property. It doesn't work that way. So, um, but some of the cases cited in this decision, if you if you want, when you're reading this, if you want to see dismissive language, just click on some of the cases they cite. Henderson versus Henderson is the ultimate get off, get out of my courtroom, says the judge, which we, again, if you go back and listen to our original discussion on this, we were really upset about that because we don't think it appropriately understands how animals are valued in our society. Warnica versus Gehring, which is another case citing in there, is the same. It's like, get the hell out of here. Don't bring us pet claims. Well, what these cases signify most to me right at the outset is at least a willingness by the courts. Like this court, I don't think does the greatest job in necessarily approaching the issues, but nor does it say get the hell out of here. Like at least it seems to recognize these are valid claims. They have some empathy for the parties. And I think there's there's more of a willingness to say, okay, we, we are willing to look at these claims more closely. Yeah. Well, so let's start with the facts of this case because it's actually quite interesting. It's, it's quite the story. Um, it, it involves Michael Duboff and Natalie Simpson, both young lawyers called to the bar in 2017 and 2018, respectively, in Toronto. So the fact that they're lawyers is another interesting aspect of this. For <laughs> they have to be lawyers. lawyers, right? Like, that's the way this works. <laughs> yeah. And they were together from 2015 to 2019, separated around September 2019. And uh, the case is about the ownership of a dog named Layla. So Layla was a adopted. Yay, not from a breeder. <laughs> um, they, they decided to adopt Layla in... I'm actually looking for the date and I don't see it here, but um, yeah, they, they decided to adopt Layla. It seems based on the evidence that was accepted by the judge, like Layla was was um, a dog who was adopted more at the initiative of Michael and he'd taken most of the steps in acquiring her. So he actually drove across the border to New York to adopt her from a PetSmart location there, registered in her in Toronto, paid for the majority of her veterinary care. Um, his name was on the adoption application. Um, on the receipt of payment for Toronto Animal Services licensing, on the microchip records, pet insurance, veterinary records, all of those things suggested that um, he was the owner of uh, Layla the dog. Um, Natalie- can I just can I just say this like there's just because I don't want to stop you there, but at paragraph twenty three, there's some interesting little asides in this that are kind of interesting. Like they they say that, you know, Natalie never took issue with the fact that her name was not shown as an owner. She says, had this she known this would have been an issue, she would have insisted on being listed as an owner. However, Natalie is a lawyer and must be taken to understand the importance of title. Like, I just think that's utter nonsense, just as an aside. Like, I think that's utterly stupid. I can't, honestly, if you were to ask me, Camille, who is on the name of ownership of my dog, it's very possibly me. Very possibly because I use my credit card pay for it and I just filled out the form and I didn't look at anything and it's like you know anybody who visits my house knows that Chili is really my wife's dog like the fact that my name is on the title (laughs) is irrelevant and as a lawyer I wasn't thinking about the importance of title because who the hell is thinking about splitting up when you sign the dog thing in fact I would argue that that's what's so dumb about this decision it's like nobody's thinking about it lawyer or otherwise I don't think I don't think I hate to use the property analogy 
about who buys X. I, I would think as a lawyer, you'd be thinking quite the opposite. It doesn't matter whose name is on the title because at the end of the day, the proper division of property is going to is gonna treat everything as jointly owned anyway. Like it yeah. seems to me that in most cases of a true partnership, you don't think that way. So I, I was like a little disappointed with that aspect of the decision. Uh, that's one of the things that the law always does is assume that people just sort of understand perfectly how it operates and that they're ma- making rational decisions that have predictable consequences when like, first of all, the law is often unpredictable and it's so nuanced. And second of all, Natalie and Michael here, were not how people make decisions and connect their lives. Yeah. Natalie and Michael were young lawyers. They must have be assumed to have taken an animal in the law course three <laughs> years before they graduated. And therefore, Natalie would have been very keen to understand exactly what title. Like, it's just it's so if ridiculous to, to me. Custody episode. <laughs> if only like, sorry, like I'm not even getting into the rest of it. But that to me was just I, when I read it, it jumped out as a particularly ridiculous statement. Yeah. Well, let's get to the part of this case that is like sort of the most ridiculous to me because it goes back to the whole narrative of how this case got to court in the first place. So they split up. Um, They initially were sort of sharing Layla. Uh, Michael had Layla most of the time, but then sometimes she would go to Natalie's place if Michael was away or unable to look after her. And um, it seems like the relationship between the two, although it was over, was like still good. But then it it started declining because Michael began a new relationship in March or April of 2020. So Natalie didn't see Layla for five months. Um, About five months into that period, uh, she actually saw Layla being walked by somebody that she didn't know on St. Clair Avenue in Toronto. And it turns out it was Michael's new girlfriend. So Natalie stopped the car runs across the street, strikes up a conversation with a new girlfriend, and then she takes Layla's leash and runs across the avenue to another car where one of her co-workers was parked and uh, kind of absconded with Layla. <laughs> so the new girlfriend from Ooh, Michael awkward. was like, um, what? <laughs> and uh, police wouldn't get involved. Police will never get involved in, in pets as property disputes, um, even if there's a clear case of you know alleged theft. They just don't do that. They always say start a civil proceeding, which Michael did. So he started this court case and um, sought custody of Layla. So yeah, I mean, essentially what the court decided to do was take the approach that Peter spoke about in Baker and Hermina, which was like, look at all these factors about who contributed to the care of the dog and how that relationship evolved over time to decide who the owner was and came down pretty clearly on the side of Michael. Uh, we talked about that already. You know, it's... But, but let me just reiterate that I think that's the better approach to the extent we're going to continue to go down this ownership paradigm. And we'll talk about that in the next part of this decision. But like to the the extent we're going to go down the ownership paradigm, I'm pretty sure that list is from the dissenting judgment in Baker and Armina. Like at least it's a little bit more open-minded. It's not just looking at title. It's looking at the relationship, right? These are all things that have no transference to any other piece of property. If you and I uh, jointly own a car and we split up, um, we don't look at who purchased and raised the car, who exercised care and control of the car, (laughs) who paid for the expenses related to the car. We don't really look at that in great depth. We simply look at where was the purchase? Who owned it? Can we divide it? If not, can one person buy the other out? And that's the end of it. So at least there is a little bit more of a, of a holistic view of who actually owned the animal. Yeah, absolutely. Which I think is a much better approach, as you stated, to the traditional one. 
And uh, if you look at the Coates and Dixon case, which you mentioned earlier, Peter, same same sort of approach. Very interesting to see this. And uh, yeah, I suspect we're going to see this continue to seep into law, at least in Ontario, now that you've got these two superior court decisions on the topic. Yeah, which leads to the second question, because to me, at all questions, and it's kind of interesting that the judge, to me, the more interesting part of this is that Natalie, being, should I remind you, a young lawyer, uh, comes up with the idea <laughs> of trying to ask the court to impose a trust. And a trust is one of the ways we've talked about in the past of getting clever because again you can't you can't uh, um, treat dog cases as much as we might like to as children cases we're not going to look at what's in the best interest of the dog in terms of is there an interest in having visitation is there an interest in shared custody we're just not going to do that because the law doesn't expressly suggest that we should and the courts have not you know seen seen fit to impose that sort of language but if you read through between the lines or behind the the lines, you can sort of see a little bit of that through the way they're trying to use a trust in this case, Um, the way in which they're trying to find through a trust that there is some reason to allow you to have some type of interest because like I, I'm not sure the funny thing is um, they're not they're not willing to like it's not really clear to me what the trust does that's the part that's unseen I am not a trust expert Camille I know that you are and Jessica might be in law Jessica Jessica might be from her you know time at Vermont law school all I know about yeah, trusts is like the fact that you have a trust doesn't mean that like there's going to be some kind of custody arrangement coming out of the trust. The, the, a trust just simply provides a financial interest in the thing. So in theory, I'm not sure like they, the judge doesn't go through to it. Although, as you can see in paragraph 44, this is the part where the judge is not particularly adventurous about going forward with this because the courts are not, con- they're concerned about supervising the sharing of a pet. This is where we get that concern about resources. It's not a good idea because even if the trust is tenable and the you know Natalie was unable to establish it in this case, it's not really clear what you would do with the trust. Like, what would you do? Order like, some kind of joint custody? The, the court you, clearly says that's not really a great option. They don't want to do that. Like, no. even if you find the trust, like the, the, the remedy for a trust in that circumstance would normally be a financial compensation. So again, if I have a trust in in a car, or more likely, if you remember from your family law cases, in a house, the court will impose a financial remedy, but that's not what Natalie wants. So essentially, she's trying to flow from the trust to this equitable remedy of sort of sharing in custody. I think that is an interesting idea. I think it is something I wish the courts were more willing to consider. And quite frankly, I mean, I it's tough because in this case, I, I can see the concerns about a cost sharing, a cost or custody sharing arrangement because I'm not going to wade into family law waters, but I do know that where the parties are not getting along, it's really difficult to impose custody. They'll do it for kids, but man, they'll go through all kinds of hoops to ensure that the parties never have to see each other. There's this theoretical concern about violence. Like it's not, it's not a, it's not the type of thing the court is going to do. I hate to say it for a dog, even though it might be what's in the best interests of both the dog and Natalie. Yeah, perhaps. I know there's also, you know, interesting discussions in family law about the best interest test for the children and to move away from that in many respects, because 
Um, some folks think it's more important to provide clarity than, than this, you know, sort of amorphous nebulous test of what the best interests are, trying to call evidence on what the best interest is. Uh, so, you know, I can certainly appreciate a court that wants certainty here instead of, you know, an ongoing situation that could give rise to further conflict. So there we are. That's a super interesting case, a rare sort of animal-focused custody case that comes out in Ontario. And uh, we'll be watching to see what follows this. And and by the way, I, I, I just let me finalize on that point. I'm just going to read the car- the paragraph that I, I don't like. I mean, this whole thing is sort of like paragraphs 43 and 44 are the most interesting because they sort of emphasize what we had just talked about. This idea that, you know, what are you going to do with the dog? And he says, uh, sorry, I'm not sure if it's a he or a she, a female judge. Um, even though a dog is considered property, it is true that it is more than property to most people. However, a dog's not a child. It straddles a difficult place between the two. As property, the court could order that the dog be sold and that the parties share the proceeds, which I'm certain neither party would want. But they do say, or it could impose some kind of shared schedule as Natalie requests. But then this is the part of the judgment that I don't really like. I actually think the judgment's not doing too terribly up to this point. I understand. I even understand the judge's final order, but I don't know why they had to stick in this. Courts are not equipped to supervise sharing of a pet. Orders requiring some kind of shared schedule would encourage cases like like this in the context of limited court resources. So let me just say again to the court, that is not your job. You are not in the business of deciding what matters to people. Unless I've mistaken something, it is up to people mm-hmm. to decide what they wish to take to the courts. And, um, you know, this idea that, okay, well, well, okay, well, we're not going to get into this because it's not the court's business to get into this. Like better that people should take the law into their own hands and start, you know, grabbing dogs in the street and taking them uh, in this <laughs> possessory way. Like I just don't, I don't, I don't like when the courts, you know, throw that and that is clearly present while this judge is is not nearly as condescending as the judge in Henderson v. Henderson and is certainly more open to the discussion. But they they need they still need to throw in. Oh, but by the way, don't bother us with these cases because they're not worth our time and resources. And I'm like, that's not your job. These these cases do matter. And these cases really make a difference to individuals who love their animals like like that is that is something that needs to be uh, understood by the court. So this idea that they shouldn't do it is really disappointing. Yeah, ultimately, you know, the courts are there because we pay taxes and because we deserve access to them. If the courts are overburdened, that's a problem for the legislature. That's a problem that they have to sort out funding, appoint new judges, change the law, whatever. It's, you know people's well, rights to take their cases to court. That's absolutely right. But I, I, I think the lar- in the larger sense, what I'm what I'm expressing as a concern is this there is is the implied statement that's not in there, right? The implied statement in paragraph 44 that animals aren't worth it. That's the implied statement, and that bothers me as much as anything else. So, like, along with the idea that courts, yes, should be there to service people's needs, I don't think it's for the courts to tell us that animals aren't important. That's just not true. In fact, these cases that people continue to be willing to invest time and energy in the courts show quite the contrary, that people really love and value their animals. I mean, I wish they valued them more so that we could stop chuck wagon races, but hey, I'll take one (laughs) step at a time, Camille, one step at a time. Yeah, yeah. I mean, and this idea, too, that courts are simply not equipped to supervise the sharing of a pet is, is so strange to read. Because, Why? I mean, this is yeah. what courts do. They supervise yeah. orders that they issue all the time. You know, you might reach a negotiated settlement in a, in a case and then have that under court supervision for a very long time, for periods of years, to see if 
parties maintain or um, carry out what they promised to do. Like that's just, it's like literally the job of courts. Yeah. And that's a good place to finish off because what, if we remember with, with back from episode four or five, when we did Baker versus Harmina, that was my favorite part of the dissenting judgment was this, this, this blanket rejection of the idea that this is not important and the court shouldn't be involved with that. If you remember, Justice Hoyg was very much like, no, people keep telling us this is important. So we should respond. It's not up to us to say, you know what? Don't come here with your crap, right? It doesn't matter. We don't want to encourage people to settle putt custody disputes in the courts. Like, where should they settle them? In the in, in the back alleys? I don't understand this <laughs> idea that, you know, animals aren't important. The, the people who keep bringing these cases year after year clearly think they are important enough. And let me tell you, now I'm on a real rant, but let me tell you, like, I am a practicing lawyer. People don't want to spend money on lawyers when they don't have to. There's nothing they hate more. All these people are bringing legal actions and paying lawyers just to deal with the pet custody. There was nothing else. Now I know that Natalie is in fact a lawyer and more likely to understand how this works, but <laughs> she's not the only litigant in these cases. So I just, that aspect of it really gets in my craw, as you can hear, just this idea of, oh, don't come to us, we're too busy. <laughs> Well, and isn't there isn't there a, an animal justice board member, Rebecca Bretter? Doesn't she do these cases on a very regular basis? Yeah, Rebecca advisor. Yeah, um, does lots of pet custody cases. Uh, Jody Lazar, another um, right you know, animal justice affiliated individual who, with whom we've worked a lot, um, writes about pet custody cases and family law. Like it's a, it's an area of law. Like it is a legit area of law. It's a thing. It's a thing. It's a thing. All right, there we go. Hope you enjoyed that discussion. <laughs> Are we on to our favorite part of the episode, Camille? I think we are. Who wants to say it? You go. It's time for <laughs> Heroes and Zeros. Heroes and Zeros. Heroes and Zeros. Heroes and Zeros. All right, we got Heroes and Zeros. It's a little more difficult when we've got all three hosts. <laughs> I think it was perfect. I think that was the best one yet. All right, so I'm talking about the hero today. Our hero today is the U.S. Ninth Circuit Court in California. And we have made them our hero for rejecting another attempt by the national pork producers and others to overturn decisions made by the democratically elected government of California to impose more restrictions on the way in which these farmers or whatever you want to call them, pork producers, hold their animals. And essentially, this was an attempt and I'm not going to delve into the aspect of the case, but it was an attempt to use the Constitution, the U.S. Constitution, to say that California exceeded their mandate by interfering with commerce. And the, uh, the and there have been many varied attempts to try and overturn all sorts of restrictions. We're going to go out of business. Once they lose the business case, they try and find constitutional reasons. And to me, it's really important that the substantive law in this case might not necessarily apply to Canada, but but then again, Camille, it might, right? Like, you know, we have a commerce clause that the federal government holds. And in theory, it's not quite as robust as the U.S. one. My constitutional knowledge is a little shady. But nonetheless, like if a province were to, God, wouldn't that be great, Camille, if a province were to ever put in higher restrictions ban on the way on, animals are kept? Ban on cages, gestation I'm crates. Trying to, I'm trying to think. Crates. I'm trying to, to think. Imagine. 
I'm trying to think. I haven't looked at my provincial regulatory standards, but they are. Uh, are we fair to say a little thin on the ground as far as regulatory oversight of any industrial production is? Yeah, little I mean, thin, I would right? say like basically non-existent. Like there are no animal welfare specific regulations for farms. Like unless unless you consider sled dogs a commercial, uh, you know, commercially oh, yeah, used animal. Dogs. So I mean they're. Yeah, a couple, stuff, but not farms. There are a couple of other things, yeah, but there's not much. Anyway, but if there ever were, we know that everybody would go ape crap and try and find constitutional reasons why it couldn't be the case. So I think it mm-hmm. was, um, even if it was uh, uh, seemingly straightforward, I still think that we can give out our hero to the U.S. Ninth Circuit Court for slapping away this uh, nuisance of a lawsuit. Bravo. Bravo. That's cool. I haven't read the decision, but I understand that you actually uh, focused on this a little bit in your fellowship, Jess. Yeah, we talked a, we talked a lot. I mean, I, I had sent you a text saying like, why don't we have this ballot option in Canada? Like, how amazing would that be where we can actually vote for stuff like this? Yeah, and that was well, the we do. thing about this. We do. Because it came from Proposition 12, which was a you know, right. ballot initiative where all Californians get to vote and say, hey, do you think animals should be confined in torture devices or not? And they were like, no. Right. I mean, to put this stuff on the ballot, imagine people standing there with the option and just made to even think about it for a second. Oh, wait a minute. I have this option right now to check yes or no. Who's going to say, yeah, yeah, keep them in there? You know? Yeah. yeah. We do have these ballot options. They're just impossible to actually use properly. <laughs> yeah, there is one in BC, but you need to has one but it's like impossible and in alberta they put referendum options on the ballot all the time for stupid things that never have anything to do with anything Uh, yeah annoying all right for every hero there's a zero oh this is a zero camille yes this is a very big zero very summer themed upsetting zero Uh, I came up with this one because like I was sitting here. I seem to recall, Camille, I actually went back to the archives to try and find it. But I seem to recall a year or two ago, it must have been a year ago because apparently they came out in 2020. We were very excited in one of our shows about Nestle's vegan drumsticks, right? Mm, yes. We were excited about them. We all oh, talked about them. About I was excited. A lot. I'm excited so just thinking about them. Yeah, I did too. And, I ate a lot. And, and uh, we were all excited about it. And this year, I just went looking for them again, right? Because they were really good. So summer started and I went looking. Couldn't find them. I'm like, man, this store is not carrying them. Couldn't find them. Next store is not carrying them. That's really weird. Like they always kind of, then I'm like, well, they must be out of business. Oh no, they're not out of business. <laughs> Once I did the Google, what I figured out was Nestle somehow got dairy in their non-dairy drumsticks. No. And, uh, And they had to recall, it now seems like all of them, they have all been recalled because of the containing of dairy, which of course for lactose intolerant people is actually dangerous. And for vegans like us is incredibly upsetting. Super upsetting. And like, this was a big win, these drumsticks, right? Like even just the amount of energy we've spent all, you know, promoting them. I put them on my Instagram, like that pisses me off. Oh, it doesn't just piss me off. I am uh, I am waiting for the class action lawsuit that I think is going to come. I really do. I I don't know on behalf of vegans, lactose intolerant people, and actual consumers. Like I don't like eating dairy when uh, I ordered plant based. Like that is something that upsets me. It offends me, and I think Nestle obviously has got to do better. And uh, by the way, I don't know if you've enjoyed the Magnums. Now we're switching gears, which I'm hoping yes. do not. The Magnums <laughs> are I'm, great, but now. 
Which I'm hoping. Exactly. I'm hoping don't contain any dairy. Yeah. Yeah. That's a scary thought, actually. And I mean, like, not just eating it, but paying for it. I don't want to be, I mean, it's already like I'm giving Nestle my money is already a difficult situation. But you're hoping that you're voting for a particular product and it turns out you're not even doing that. I am so angry, Camille, that I should be contacting one of the many class action lawyers who work on contingency in this country. Because honestly, I'm half joking, but I don't know why we don't do it. I'll join like, you. I actually think I, will join I actually you. think I actually think this is outrageous. And I'll that when I learned in. about it, I was upset. Well, I'll join in if this settlement is like a lifetime supply of like after they fix this dairy issue of these drumsticks. Yes. <laughs> that's, that's, that's the that. funny thing. That's that's the funny thing is like we're all outraged but we would all settle if they fixed it like oh I would too I I'm like I'm like I don't want to bankrupt Nestle I just want the drumsticks back like I thought That's they right. were amazing and I want them back but then again Camille maybe I only like them because they had dairy in them like the dairy farmers are already Blasphemy. are already no. planning their reaction <gasps> Blasphemy, oh. blasphemy. Don't say that. Let's hope it was just trace amounts. I'm sure. Oh I'm my sure. God. But they did, they did say one person actually got sick. At oh. least one case of somebody having a, a reaction. Yeah. Oh. And 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 the CFIA is all over it, right? I love it. The CFIA is all over it. So yeah, they've Good. all been pulled. It's absolutely ridiculous. And it's really upsetting because I like them. I'm looking at the thing right now, vanilla chocolate swirl. All right, so Nestle, right, well, you, you get a big fat zero. Back on the shelves, please let us know because I'm still going to buy them as long as they resolve. Well, this <laughs> this article was yes. published in June. So, uh, so yeah, this is recent. All right, Nestle, a big fat zero. I'm telling you. All right, I'm looking for Maggie the Elephant and Nestle Vegan Drumsticks. That's my, my assignment <laughs> for the month. <laughs> Maggie and Drumsticks. There you go. Well, all right, that, was, that was fabulous. It was yeah. nice to be back together, all three of us. You'll, you'll hear from me and Jess after Labor Day, and we're looking forward to it. Enjoy. In the meantime, enjoy the rest of your August. Stay safe. Yes, stay away from the smoke August. if you can. Stay cool. Take care, everyone. We'd like to thank our listeners for tuning in today. We'd love to ask you to subscribe to the Pod and Order podcast using Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or your other favorite podcatcher. Also, please leave a rating because it helps more people find the show. You can also consider supporting us on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash order if you like what you hear. You can find me on Twitter at, at Peter Sankoff or at my website, petersankoff.com. You can find me on Twitter at Jess L. Reed. And you can find me on Twitter at, at Camille Labchuk, that's L-A-B-C-H-U-K. And we always enjoy Twitter conversations about the show or any other animal law or political topics. And finally, we'd like to thank our producer, Shannon Nickerson. See you next time on Pawn Order. For more great iRaw podcasts, visit iRawPod.com. That's I-R-O-A-R-P-O-D.com. Ow!